From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Texas residents complain emissions from the massive Eagle Ford shale oil and gas production are making them sick, but Texas regulators don't see much of a problem. The Eagle Ford shale is the biggest economic development zone in the world right now. It's rather remarkable. About one in four Texas legislators or their spouses have direct financial interests in companies that are active in the Eagle Ford. Also a strong recovery for a tiny minnow, the Oregon chub has been brought back from the brink of extinction. We have a little fish that most people didn't know about, few people care about, and we managed to recover them you know, in a working landscape. I think it demonstrates what can be done. But what about the gray wolf? Wolves and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The fracking boom for natural gas and oil has created an abundance of domestic energy, but it can also lead to an abundance of air pollution if it's not appropriately regulated. And judging by the number of complaints, nowhere is fracking air pollution more of a problem than atop the Eagle Ford Shale in southwest Texas. An eight-month investigation by Inside Climate News, the Weather Channel, and the Center for Public Integrity has found many people in the region developed serious health problems after fracking began. For myself, I've experienced a lot of difficulty with my breathing. I used to come out here, this very park before all that was there, and run literally about four or five miles a day with, without any problems. Now I barely get a mile out before I start choking. It's just something heavier with the air. I have two and a half acres and I can't bring my grandchild out here to enjoy it because I'm afraid for his health. Jim Morris is a senior reporter at the Center for Public Integrity who traveled throughout the region as he worked on the investigation. The Eagle Ford Shale is a formation that is at the center of one of the biggest oil and gas booms in the country, probably the world. It currently has almost 8,000 wells uh, that have been drilled in it and another 5,000 or so that have been permitted that will be drilled. An industry person told us it is the uh, biggest economic development zone in the world right now. And this is oil and gas wells we're talking about here. It's oil and gas, yes. So what are the types of chemicals and how much of them are in the air as a result of all this uh, drilling and uh, fossil fuel extraction? Some of the chemicals that go along with uh, oil and gas uh, drilling and processing include volatile organic compounds, benzene, formaldehyde, toluene, xylene. These are chemicals that have been linked to cancer. They've been linked to neurological effects, birth defects. It includes a particulate matter and uh, sulfur dioxide that can cause terrible respiratory problems. This part of the state has uh, an added layer of risk. There's a chemical there called hydrogen sulfide, which is a naturally occurring gas that is extremely toxic, even at low levels, and can be lethal in relatively high levels. It's a particular risk to workers. As I understand it, in Texas, it's pretty easy to do one of these wells without much of a permit. There's sort of a series of, in your report, what you described as uh, as sort of sizing loopholes. Could you explain that? There is something called a permit by rule in Texas, which is... um basically an an honor system. It was designed for, you know, small sort of mom and pop facilities that 
in theory, don't put out much in the way of air pollution. But wait a second. You're saying it's an honor system to control your emissions if you're doing fracking uh, in Texas? No, not for everyone, but for these smaller facilities, they essentially swear that you know they're not going to put out more than a certain amount of uh, of air pollution, and uh, you know the state basically takes them at their word. So, if I uh, say have an operation that has ten different components, can I declare each of these as sort of independent so that I don't ever have to get a formal permit for my uh, agglomeration of activity? Yes, you can. Yeah, and that's being done. I think the term they use is stacking permits. You sort of stack one on top of the other, not taking into account the cumulative emissions of all those facilities together. You profile one resident, Lynn Buring, who has more than 50 drilling wells within two and a half miles of her home. Here's a snippet of her talking about her health problems. Well, then suddenly this Eagle Ford Shell stuff starts happening. And I noticed that there's stuff coming up into my throat and my nose is shutting down and there's this heaviness on my chest and it feels like an elephant sitting here and it feels like somebody's choking the air out of me. And I I can't get a breath. How common is that type of breathing problem in these heavily fracked areas? It seems to be pretty common. We reviewed almost 300 complaints filed by people like uh, Mrs. Buring with the state of Texas since the beginning of 2010, I believe. And a lot of those complaints uh, describe situations like hers, you know, difficulty breathing, nausea, nosebleeds, uh, severe headaches, all the sorts of symptoms we would come to expect with fracking. What happened uh, when these residents report these concerns to local regulators? Well, uh, not a lot happened. The 284 complaints we reviewed from residents of the Eagle Ford Shale resulted in 164 violations. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality sent investigators out, and in many cases, they did find violations. But I think the striking thing was that out of those 164 violations, there were only two fines issued. By the way, how big were those fines? The biggest was $14,000. But when you're talking about a multi-million dollar you know, oil company, uh, I don't think $14,000 uh, really gets their attention. So the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality declined an interview with us, but they did send us a statement in part that says, overall, shale play activity does not significantly impact air quality or pose a threat to human health. This conclusion is based on millions of air monitoring data points that TCEQ has collected since the year 2000. Jim Morris, how do you respond to that? I think that's a rather misleading statement. Uh, they only have five permanent air monitors in the Eagleford Shale area, which is about 20,000 square miles or twice the size of the state of Massachusetts for a point of reference. And these monitors are not in the areas of heaviest drilling. Carnes County, which is where we spent a lot of our time, is the absolute epicenter. And it's just unbelievably overloaded with wells and processing plants. They don't have a permanent monitor there. Talk to me more about the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. What kind of budget do they have? What kind of uh, personnel do they have to be the regulators? Uh, During the same uh, five-year period uh, that the uh, Eagle Ford Shale play was ramping up, was really going, which would be from about 2008 until the present, the uh, TCEQ's budget, the state agency's uh, budget, was being cut by a third. 
So, at, you know, at the very time you've got an extraordinary boom going on, the regulator's budget is being slashed. This is an agency that does not have a good reputation with environmentalists. Its chairman is a, um, is a close uh, friend of uh, Governor Rick Perry. Its chairman is a um, climate change denier, as is Governor Perry. In one of our stories, we took a close look at uh, the very cozy relationship between the oil and gas industry and the Texas legislature, which obviously controls the TCEQ's budget. It's rather remarkable. I think one of the key findings was that about one in four Texas legislators or their spouses uh, have direct financial interests in companies that are active in the Eagle Ford. So, you know, you have to wonder how much independence people in the Texas legislature have. What kind of recourse do people like uh, Lynn Baring have if the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality is not really responding to their concerns? People like Lynn Buring really don't have much recourse. You know, they can try to move, but some would argue they shouldn't have to move. They've lived there for a long time. This is where they, I'm talking about Carnes County, Texas, is where they plan to spend their retirement. One of the questions we're going to be asking of the EPA is, what are you going to do about this? We've presented this evidence that uh, regulation by state officials is not very vigorous. People feel that their plates are not being addressed. Uh, what are you going to do about it, the EPA? And so it'll be interesting to hear what they say if they talk to us. Jim Morris is a senior reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. Thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. And there's more on this investigation at our website, LOE.org. While Texas may be slow to act, Colorado recently became the first state to respond to the fracking boom with new regulations on emissions from oil and gas production. The new rules go after methane, a potent greenhouse gas, as well as volatile organic compounds which pose health risks. Joining us now is Gary Kaufman, Deputy Director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's Air Pollution Control Division. He says figuring out exactly where the emissions are coming from is half the battle. One of the challenges with the oil and gas industry is that they have a whole variety of emission points, some of which are big and some of which are small. So you really have to attack them one by one, identifying the most significant sources and then coming up with strategies that can be used to reduce those. So what's a big, typical place that you might get emissions? Well, one of the largest sources of emissions from production sites are actually from oil storage tanks. Oil would be put into an atmospheric storage tank, and in that process, there'll be uh, what we call flashing of emissions when you get a pressure drop from high-pressure liquid that's underground to the atmospheric pressure, and that really creates a significant source of emissions. Uh, another area would be just the cumulative leaks that you get from a facility. As you can imagine, uh, these are fairly complex facilities with lots of piping and lots of different components, including valves and couplings and pumps, all of which can leak uh, if they're not properly maintained. So, you know, one of the things that we've done as part of our regulations is require a pretty comprehensive leak detection and repair program that requires operators to go out at varying frequencies, depending on the size of the facility, and, and use an infrared camera or other device to identify the leaks and then get them repaired. Now, methane is a really tiny molecule. It just, anytime it gets loose, it just wants to go up in the atmosphere, huh? That's absolutely true. Now, as I understand it, you put this together with the fairly enthusiastic cooperation of industry. How did you manage to do that? Well, it was uh, a lot of hard work. 
frankly, I think our governor, Governor John Hickenlooper, deserves a lot of credit because he really stepped in behind the scenes and really worked with uh, some of the big parties to encourage them to work with each other and come up with a set of solutions that uh, were pretty tough but could also be implemented by the industry. In other words, the government knocked a few heads together. I think absolutely. The governor got in there, and I wasn't in the room when he did it, but I know that we had gotten a fair amount of agreement on a number of issues, but there were still some pretty substantial gaps between where the environmental groups were and where the industry groups were, and he went in there and knocked a few heads and and got an agreement out of them, which I think is great. So what's the scale of methane emissions uh, in your state, methane emission problems, I should say? Well, I think that, you know, it's one of the elements of our overall greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Methane from the oil and gas industry is a pretty significant element. It's not quite as large as CO2 emissions from vehicles or CO2 emissions from electric generation, but it's sort of in that next tier along with some emissions from coal mine and then agriculture actually is a fairly significant source of emissions. So they're sort of the next biggest things. Uh, They're things that haven't really been addressed by some of the federal rules like the power plant emissions and the vehicle emissions. So it's really a logical step for Colorado to move into to try and reduce our greenhouse gas footprint. What are the public health impacts of uh, these kinds of methane emissions? Well, methane itself is primarily a concern on a more global scale, uh, really in a couple of ways. Certainly, I think a lot of the interest right now with methane is that it's a potent greenhouse gas, and so it adds to the overall climate change burden. It also can be, on a more global scale, a precursor of background ozone levels, which is unhealthy for people. In addition to the methane, a lot of the requirements that we're instituting will also get pretty significant reductions of volatile organic compounds, which are a more direct precursor of ozone. And currently, some of our parts of the state are out of attainment with federal air quality requirements for ozone. And so part of the impetus of the rulemaking is not only on the climate change side, but also to reduce precursor emissions that lead to high levels of ground-level ozone. Now, natural gas has been described as a bridge fuel to clean energy. What do you think of that? And, and how do the, uh, the new Colorado regulations fit into this? We as a state have identified the use of natural gas both as a fuel for generating electricity and also as a fuel for vehicles as a really good climate change strategy because on a per unit basis, it has a lot less carbon impact than traditional gasoline or certainly than coal for coal-fired generation. To really maximize those benefits, though, it's important that we don't uh, lose some of the benefit by having methane leaking out various parts of the production cycle. So I think it really does put us in a good footing as we move forward to have an industry that can be used to generate this cleaner burning fuel, but to do so in a way that doesn't uh, diminish some of the benefits from that. They say imitation is is one of the most sincere forms of flattery. Uh, To what extent do you think other states will follow the example of Colorado here, perhaps using your regulations as a template? Well, we've gotten a lot of inquiries uh, from other states as well as from uh, the National Environmental Protection Agency about our regulations. Which states are calling you up? Uh, Well, I've talked to uh, Pennsylvania and had some discussions with them. We've had some discussions with Wyoming, uh, had some discussions with... North Dakota staff, I think, have had discussions with some other states. I know I've got an inquiry probably about six months ago from North Carolina, who's got some interest in some new development in their state. Not Texas, though. I personally have not heard from Texas. Uh, It doesn't mean that we don't have people on our staff who haven't had conversations with them. 
Gary Kaufman is the Deputy Director of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's Air Pollution Control Division. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Gary. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. Coming up, some advice for balancing technology and tradition from an indigenous leader from deep in the rainforest of Brazil. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For the past decade, deforestation rates in the Brazilian Amazon have been falling, but a recent spike has conservationists concerned. Most experts agree that when it comes to protecting the rainforest, no one does it better than the indigenous people who have lived there for centuries. They include the 9,000-strong Kayapo tribe in Brazil with a territory the size of Pennsylvania. Earlier this year, National Geographic magazine featured the struggle of the Kayapo to protect their rainforest. A chief of the tribe, Megaron T, traveled to North America seeking support for his people and talked with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom through a translator. Oi, bom dia. Chief, are you enjoying your time in the United States? Yes, I'm really enjoying being able to spend time with the NGOs that support us. I hope they'll continue to support us and our people's struggle to preserve our land, our culture, and our language. How about the weather in Toronto, though? Come on. Toronto is very cold, a lot of snow and ice. I've never seen snow before. I was very cold in New York and Toronto. <laughs> I'm sure. A far cry from the Amazon. So, so, Chief, what brings you to the United States now on this trip? I've come to explain to the public about how we live and the land, the forest that the Brazilian government has demarcated for us and our struggle to preserve this forest. And we're talking to you now from Sacramento, California, a state which is exploring the idea of paying for carbon credits in rainforest communities like yours. Is that something that you're focused on with this trip to California? Yes. Several years ago, a Brazilian NGO that works with us began a discussion about carbon credits for reducing deforestation. We talked about this among our people, but then the discussion stopped. We think it's important to restart this discussion. So I've come here to learn more, and when I return, I want to restart this important discussion about carbon credits. And can you tell me about your relationship, the relationship between the Kayapo people and, and the rainforest? The Kayapo people have always lived in the forest without destroying it. The major wealth of the forest for us is food. There are many different kinds of food, both plants and animals. There are Brazil nuts and acai palm berries. We've always used these resources in a sustainable way. We've always preserved the forest, and we plan to continue preserving it into the future. Mekaran, can you tell me about your tribe and sort of describe the daily life in your village of Kenjam? The daily life of the Kayapo people is to hunt animals in the forest and fish to feed our families. Every family has its own garden. They plant corn, manioc, and sweet potatoes. Our daily life really revolves around these things, in addition to our traditional ceremonies and rituals, which people continue practicing. So, Chief, you're 63 years old, I'm told. In your lifetime, what kind of changes have you seen in your village and your people, your way of life? 
One thing I've noted is for a number of years now the weather has been changing. It rains out of season. There are very strong winds, intense drought, and then very strong rains and floods. All these things we didn't see before. And it's because around our territory there's been a lot of deforestation, and this is going to be extremely dangerous for our children and our grandchildren. Do you think that those changes in, in weather that you've noticed, can that be attributed to climate change? Yes, I think what's causing the changes that we've seen are things that people are doing. It's deforestation, it's building dams, it's large-scale industry, and all the smoke and pollution that they put into the atmosphere. It is climate change, and it's very dangerous. The Belamanchi hydroelectric dam on the Xingu has been in and out of court over the last decade, with developers and the government pitted against environmental and indigenous groups. Um, but that's not the only dam in the works. There are several others being proposed. How exactly will those dams affect the Kayapo tribe? In years gone by, the government proposed building a dam today known as Belomonchi. Our former leaders, many of whom are no longer with us, got together and struggled against the dam to make the government respect indigenous peoples and their land. And now that dam is being constructed, and we know the government has plans to build other dams. This is very dangerous for our people. Some of the dams will be in Kayapo territory. They could flood our territory. Now, back in the 1980s and 90s, I understand that the Kayapo people formed partnerships with gold miners and sold some logging rights to loggers. How did that work out for the tribe? Uh, what was the, the relationship there? In the 80s and 90s, the loggers came and forced our leaders to sign contracts and extract timber. Miners came and forced the Kayapo to make agreements with them. As time went on, we saw that the forest was being destroyed. Gold mining was destroying the land and the rivers. So people turned against logging and mining. It was a very bad experience for us. So National Geographic ran a cover story about you and your tribe, and the pictures that go along with it show people covered in body paint and warriors wearing a headdress of parrot feathers. And then there's a photo of a Kayapo warrior in that traditional dress in a modern grocery store, and he's pushing a cart through the meat department. And the juxtaposition of that photo is really striking. Can you tell me about some of the ways your people have adapted to the changing world around them? In my lifetime, cities have grown up around our territory, but our people continue to maintain our customs and traditions. We use body painting and feather headdresses and other kinds of ornaments that we use in our ceremonies. At the same time, our young people are on the Internet. They use cell phones, they use Facebook. All the Kayapo villages have radios that they use to communicate with each other. So we've adopted a lot of things from the white people's world, but we also continue to maintain our traditions, our language, our music, our culture. Do you have children yourself, Chief? I have nine children, five girls and four boys. And I'm not sure how many grandchildren. I think 10 or 15 grandchildren. <laughs> and uh, when you see them using cell phones and Facebook and Internet and all those things, how does that make you feel? Do you ever worry, perhaps, about losing some of your tribal identity adopting these technologies? My children have gone to school, some of them to college, but they've returned to the village to help their people. I hope my grandchildren will do the same thing. At the same time, I'm concerned. I know my children and grandchildren can learn bad things from the white people's world, but my hope is that they'll be able to learn white people's things but also maintain their culture, their traditions, their language, and their customs. 
So now looking into the future, what are your greatest hopes and, and fears for your people, for the forest? I'm very worried about the deforestation and dam construction that could destroy our way of life. I'm also very concerned that politicians in Brazil are saying they want to reduce already demarcated indigenous lands. We're afraid that these initiatives will go forward and deprive us of the resources that allow us to live our traditional life. But I hope that the Kayapo will continue to fight to preserve the forest, to defend our land, our customs, our language, to go on and maintain our way of life. Chief, thanks so much for your time and uh, good luck with the rest of your trip and, and your struggles back home. Thanks to you for letting me talk about my people and our struggle. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Kayapo Chief Megaron T speaking with Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. We turn now to Peter Dykstra, the publisher of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. He's on the line from Conyers, Georgia, ready to take us on a trip beyond the headlines. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Good. What do you got for us this week? Well, you know, the old journalism tradition about the man bites dog story, the unexpected twists, the stories that have a blatant hypocrisy at their core. Yeah, they're a staple of this news business, and they've been known to even show up on this show. Well, apparently those kinds of stories are one more thing that grows a little bigger in Texas. Let me tell you about Rex Tillerson. He's the CEO of ExxonMobil, one of the mightiest oil and gas operations on Earth. Rex is part of a lawsuit, and it involves a potential fracking operation near his multi-million dollar ranch northwest of Dallas. They're planning to build a huge water tower right near Rex's ranch. The water will be largely used to supply fracking operations. And, of course, that in turn draws a lot of truck traffic, and that'll all come into Mr. Tillerson's neighborhood. So the CEO of a global oil and gas company is trying to hinder fracking if it's happening in his hood? Yeah, uh, some of the reporting on this, and there's been a ton of reporting on it because we all love that little hypocrisy story. Some of the reporting's been a little breathless and over the top because technically the lawsuit has nothing directly to do with fracking. Rex Tillerson's lawyer said that the CEO of ExxonMobil still absolutely loves fracking. He's just a little worried about what that tower and all that fracking water and all those fracking water trucks are going to do to his property values. I've got something else for you for bonus points. Okay, fire away, Peter. One of the other plaintiffs in the lawsuit is Rex Tillerson's ranching neighbor. He also happens to be a big fan of fracking in normal times. He's the former House Majority Leader, former Congressman Dick Armey. So in other words, the plaintiffs are armed with a Rex T and a Richard Army. And we'll see how far the lawsuit gets. What's going on elsewhere? Well, this past week, National Geographic's website had what may be the best lead sentence to a story that I've seen in months. And here it goes, and I quote, If Jesus were to plunge into the Jordan River today, he might well injure himself. <laughs> you got to call this a lead of biblical proportions, huh? Yeah, and the reason for it is that the Jordan River is drying up and it's dirty. So also is the Dead Sea, and so is the Sea of Galilee. You're talking about the, some of the most historic uh, and famous waterways in the world, the River Jordan. But it's never been a big river. It flows through a dry land. That dry land is increasingly full of more and more people. Those people have been in conflict with each other to one degree or another for a long, long time. There are farms and cities that are growing and sucking up the water from the River Jordan. They return pollution to it. The desert geology makes the river salty. And as the problem worsens, nobody can get enough water. As if the folks in the Middle East didn't need more reasons for conflict. 
Yeah, and that backdrop of conflict throughout the region, and, and, and we're talking about the places where the River Jordan uh, starts. There are tributaries that run out of Lebanon and Syria. And it makes it even more difficult with all that conflict. It makes it a long shot that this problem can be solved anytime soon. Hey, Peter, before you go, what do you have on the history calendar this week? We have the anniversary of one of the greatest misquotes in environmental history. Ronald Reagan got ridiculed by the media. He got ridiculed by stand-up comics and certainly by Democrats for saying the immortal words, if you've seen one tree, you've seen them all. And the problem with this is that there's no evidence that Ronald Reagan actually ever said those words. He did apparently say something similar to that. He was speaking to an industry group, the Western Wood Products Association. It was 48 years ago this month. Ronald Reagan was running for governor of California, and he was asked about a proposed expansion of Redwoods National Park, the biggest trees in the world. Reagan opposed that expansion. Ronald Reagan told the group, and these were his real words as best we can tell, a tree is a tree. How many more do you have to see? Obviously, he should have had someone log all his comments. Yeah, and by the time he made it to the White House 14 years later, he had no problem with a lot more logging. <laughs> I guess so. Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News and the dailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks a lot, Steve. Talk to you soon. Heading north now, up to a small island in the northwest corner of Hudson Bay. Writer Mark Seth Lender went there with an Inuit guide, Billy Yukatuk, to look for polar bears. But as Mark learned the hard way, when you are out hunting for bears, the bears might be hunting too. There they are. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, side by side, white as old bone china. Bellies swaying, they come up over the rise and scent the air. They look down at the beach and watch us drift, dragging on our anchor just out of reach. They have a fine and friendly look, smooth brow and lips, and the line of a permanent smile along the jaw. Little Bear raises his little round ears like a dog who wants to play. You cannot see his teeth or hers, only massive paws and the small black eyes. Little Bear nuzzles his mother, leans into her ear like he's whispering some small and secret want, and now she's looking at us, too. In a brief, transfixing stare, head lowered so you can see how big her shoulders are and the power there. And down the bank she comes and ambles in and dunks her head into the frigid polar sea as if there's something of interest there. She stares at us again and walks away and looks again and angles back as if she intends to investigate that shoal over there and turns towards us and moves our way that much deeper and further into the bay and the wind shifts and the boat swings. And the little one, so much as 500 pounds of polar bear is small, takes it all in to learn just how it's done. His mother's final gambit when it comes will be to disappear beneath the choppy little waves and all our attention focused where she used to be. She'll come up on the other side with a roar of water like the inrushing tide and the last we'd hear like seals knocked off a floeberg. And it's time to get the hell out of here. Leave the anchor, cut the line, pull out the choke, and yank the starter cord as hard as you can while the motor sputters like a drowning man. Hope, 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 
Hope, hope, hope, hope. The fieldwork for Mark Seth Lender's essay was supported by the Hamlet of Arviat and Arviat Community Ecotourism. For photographs of Mama Bear and Baby Bear, lumber on over to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, some exciting news from the bald eagle nest at Berry College in Georgia. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Barry College biologist Renee Carlton about the school's eagle cam that broadcasts a live feed of a pair of bald eagles nesting on campus. And we heard there's been a development, so we thought we'd call up Professor Carlton. Renee Carlton. Hi there, Renee Carlton. Steve Kerwood here at Living on Earth. How are you? Hi, Steve. I'm great. I understand you have some news for us about the bald eagles. We do. On Saturday, an eaglet hatched, and the mother and father have been feeding it. Uh, I was just looking at the uh, nest cam a few minutes ago, and the little one had a nice big meal, and now mother's tucked it away, and it's taking a nap. I see. I'm I'm looking at the camera now, and I, I just see mom there and some stuff off to the side. Let's say that's the fridge. Okay. Uh, There's a couple of fish heads, and also there's remains of a coot, which is a type of waterfowl that is very common uh, prey item for eagles. So uh, plenty of food there. Mm, Sounds yummy. Yeah. Now, uh, how soon will we see the chick? Well, every time it gets hungry, it starts to move around a little bit. So probably in uh, every half hour or so, you can actually get a peek. It's all covered with a gray down, really cute, and just looks around. It's getting much more alert now, moving around a little bit more and getting more coordinated. So it's growing a little bit every day. How soon uh, will it fly? Well, they are usually in the, the nest for quite a long period of time. The last pair of eaglets that were produced last year were born or hatched in January, late January, and they left the nest in late April. So that's a span of about four months. The young eaglet will be the same size as its parents when it begins its flight. So we've got a little ways to wait. Wait a second. You're saying that this eaglet has to be the same size as as mom and dad before it can fly? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Wow, they have a lot of feeding to do. They do, and uh, the pair will be busy making sure that there's plenty of food available. They'll work really hard to ensure that this eaglet makes it. I'm looking here at your website. That's berry.edu slash eaglecam, hoping that we'll see this this young one come out. Mom has turned her head around now. She's she's tucked her head under her wing. She's going to go to sleep? It looks like she's going to take a nap. Well, I guess it's hard work raising young eagles. It is, you know. 
And uh, it's kind of a good napping day anyway with the sun behind the clouds and it's a bit breezy and cool. So she settled down for a little bit of a nap. Well-deserved. All right. Well, we'll check back with you later when the, the young one gets a lot bigger. Okay. Renee Carlton is a biologist at Berry College in Mount Berry, Georgia. Thanks so much, Renee. You're welcome. Now, our national symbol was once on the endangered species list, thanks to hunting, habitat loss, and the pesticide DDT. But since DDT was banned in 1972, the bald eagle recovered enough to be taken off the list in 2011. And now we have news of another possible delisting, a tiny minnow called the Oregon chub. This little fish lives only in the Willamette Valley of Oregon and was first ruled endangered more than 20 years ago. The chub started to rebound, and by 2011, it was classified as merely threatened. Now officials are saying it's fully recovered and want it removed from the endangered species list altogether, which would be a first for fishes. Cassandra Profita from the public media collaborative EarthFix has our story. Hank! John Auer and his dog Hank are in the middle of his family's 900-acre farm near Monmouth. After strapping on some waders, Auer pushes through thick tangles of grass and sinks into brown, swampy water. Home base for the chub is inside here. On about 30 acres of the farm, Auer has teamed up with wildlife managers to expand the marshlands around Jaunt Creek. They removed soil and replaced some invasive reed canary grass with native plants. Auer says the idea was to improve habitat for salmon, steelhead, and waterfowl. I go, I go duck hunting out here twice a year, maybe. The rest of the time, you know, it's theirs. They can have it. But in the process of sampling the fish in the new habitat, a biologist with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife found many other lesser-known species. He just put these little crawdad trap-like things out, and he caught like 250 fish, little fish of all different kinds that I didn't even know were in here. In a pool behind a beaver dam... The traps reveal dozens of a native minnow called Oregon chub. This little fish, which grows no more than three inches long, has been on the endangered species list since 1993. Well, he told me that they were a threatened species. I, I was you know, taken aback. I had no idea that they would be here or that there even was that kind of fish. Brian Bangs is the biologist who found the chub on our property. He's been working to recover the species since 2005 wading into Willamette Valley muck to look for them, and at times getting stuck in the process. He says the fish can be a bit underwhelming in appearance. Yeah, they don't look like much, but really they're representative of a lot of the habitat we used to have here in the valley, the swampy slough habitat that was um, prevalent in the lowland bottoms of the valley before colonization and industrialization. Most people don't know about Oregon chub. They're certainly not a fish anglers try to catch, though they do get eaten by a lot of game fish. And that was part of the problem. Bass, bluegill, crappie, uh, bullhead, these were brought over and uh, introduced as sport fish. And Oregon chub hide in vegetation. And these are the same spots where a lot of these predators are hunting. Biologists came up with a simple plan to keep invasive fish from eating the minnows to the point of extinction. They introduced chub to predator-free ponds where their numbers could grow. That helped with another problem chub faced, which was the loss of ponds and sloughs. Bing says the construction of dikes and dams to control flooding eliminated a lot of the marshlands Chubb liked to call home. Chubb like silty, muddy substrates, um, the kind of places where you say, I'm not drinking that water. Project leader Paul Shearer has been working to recover Chubb since they were first listed. He says in a way, the fact that Chubb keep a low profile has helped them recover. 
it was painless for many landowners to add chub ponds without changing their farm or forest operations. And the fact that they are small and don't have a big effect on a lot of people made our job a little bit easier. Meanwhile, efforts to improve salmon and steelhead habitat by allowing more water flows through dams on the Willamette River have also helped the lesser-known chub. When the fish were listed as endangered, biologists could account for less than 1,000 Oregon chub. Now they count around 160,000 of them. A large chunk of their new habitat is on private land, like ours family farm. And we have a little fish that most people didn't know about, few people care about, and we managed to recover them you know, in a working landscape. I think it demonstrates what can be done. Paul Henson is a state supervisor for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Oregon. He says everyone pretty much agrees that these little fish no longer need endangered species protection. Oregon chub, it's, it's so clearly recovered now. I've not heard of any folks disagreeing with the decision here. I'd say it's, um, it's pretty much a consensus that the time is right. That's a big deal, because while other fish have been removed from the endangered species list, it hasn't been because their populations rebounded. Take the longjaw cisco, blue pike, and tacopa pupfish. They all came off the list because they went extinct. Overall, we, in the United States, we've got about 1,400 species listed. Fish, plants, birds, insects... And um, there's not been a fish yet proposed for delisting due to recovery. A thriving population of Oregon chub isn't just good news for the future of these minnows. It's also one more step in making the Willamette Valley a healthier place for the native birds, reptiles, and other fish that live in the same swamps and rely on Oregon chub as part of their food chain. That's why John Auer says he'd be happy to add another chub pond to his family farm, whether the fish are endangered or not. I'm Cassandra Profita reporting. There's more about the Oregon Chub and the public media collaborative EarthFix at our website, LOE.org. Packs of gray wolves once roamed widely across North America. But European settlers cast wolves as destructive vermin that should be wiped out. And during the 20th century, they nearly were. Gradually, opinions changed. In 1974, wolves were protected under the Endangered Species Act, and in the 1990s, they were successfully reintroduced into the northern Rockies. Over the last three years, wolves have been delisted in most northwestern states, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service now proposes to remove protection altogether. But gray wolves are still missing from much of their historic range, and an independent review panel says the move is premature. Bob Wayne conservation geneticist at UCLA, was one of the reviewers. Hi there, Bob. Hey there. What's the current situation of gray wolves in the U.S.? There are three so-called recovered populations in the American West, and, uh, you know, various debate about whether they're really recovered or not, but they've been delisted by an act of Congress, actually, a rider on a budget amendment. And then the bulk of wolves are actually in Minnesota, the Great Lakes area, and they probably number more than 4,000. And what about the Northeast? Well, uh, there's nothing in the Northeast, so to speak of. There are larger canids that are coyote-like, but that may be crosses between coyotes and gray wolves. Now, what is the basis that the Fish and Wildlife Service is using for its decision to delist the gray wolf for all of the U.S.? The usual procedure is to delist when your populations are recovered, and they've met some kind of numerical target. In this case, they're delisting because of a, a taxonomic change. 
And this taxonomic change involves reconsidering what the gray wolf is, and especially the gray wolf in the Great Lakes area, and that inhabited the East Coast historically as a different species, Canis lycaon, the eastern wolf. Now, for folks who don't remember their biology, what's taxonomic mean? (laughs) Taxonomic just means where it's classified in the taxonomic hierarchy, like dogs are, you know, uh, often considered a a kind of wolf, Canis lupus, where Canis is the genus name and lupus is the species name. In this case, the eastern wolf is considered a separate species with its own species name, Canis lycaons. Previously, all those wolves were considered as part of the gray wolf, Canis lupus. So how does this redefinition of the eastern wolf affect this whole delisting process? Surprisingly, it causes Canis lupus um, not to be listed because it's an invalid taxon. That is, previously, as listed in 1975, it contained the full range of the gray wolf in the United States and Canada, and that also included uh, the Great Lakes area and 22 eastern states. And so if there was a different wolf living there during that time, in other words, Canis lycaon was never listed as an endangered entity, And so, therefore, whatever wolf is living in the East Coast and the Great Lakes area isn't protected under the Endangered Species Act. When was the last time the Fish and Wildlife Service delisted a critter because they changed the taxonomy? I can't think of any example. And so this sets a very dangerous precedent in my view. And to me, it's a bit of a taxonomic sleight of hand that uh, clearly the evidence isn't strong enough um, for doing this kind of very dramatic action, and that was the unanimous view of the panel. What is the science behind this uh, declaration that there is a a new wolf? Well, it's controversial, and (laughs) the, the funny thing about the composition of this panel, it was myself who represents a group that feels the eastern wolf is not a distinct species, but just an interesting variety of the great wolf, And my, I say, opponent, um, Paul Wilson, was also on the panel who recognizes this eastern wolf as a distinct species. And we were both really in agreement, and that was premature, to really make any taxonomic decisions now. What kind of information were you folks on the panel presented with? The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service kept together a panel, their biologists, and they wrote a long review that made the argument that this was a separate species in the East Coast and published it in a Fish and Wildlife Service journal called Flora and Fauna that hasn't published anything since 1991. So they kind of reinvigorated this journal to publish this long review. So we provided that. And then a proposed rule change that delisted the Eastern Wolf that was published in the Federal Register that largely just repeated the arguments in this huge review that was published in Flora and Fauna. That was our principal material that was provided to us. And we were to judge whether the arguments um, were scientifically valid, and we felt that they did not represent the best science. And I think we're in agreement also. We're on sort of the cusp of uh, producing new studies that, like in humans, use complete genome sequence information to provide a much more definitive picture and test of the hypothesis that this eastern form is really different. Action had been taken to try to begin uh, reintroducing the wolf in Maine. What would it have done? You know, I think the gray wolf, when reintroduced back into Yellowstone, everyone agrees that there was a dramatic ecological effect of the reintroduction of the gray wolves. They controlled elk, they changed elk behavior, that reduced grazing pressure, brought back trees, you know, 
um, change the whole trophic structure of the Yellowstone ecosystem. That's what many people believe. I think uh, such beneficial changes might occur in the East Coast as well. I used to live in, in uh, Massachusetts, and there's clearly a deer problem there. <laughs> and to think that gray wolves could be reintroduced to parts of New England and New York, and that potentially they would add some biological control, change habitats, I think that's pretty exciting. Bob Wayne is a conservation geneticist at UC Los Angeles. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. You're welcome. Glad to do it. Wolves are fully protected and very vocal in Yellowstone National Park. Reporter Jennifer Jarrett went out to listen with a wolf expert. I'm Rick McIntyre. I work for the Park Service in Yellowstone National Park, and my title is Biological Technician. One of the things I often think about when um, we hear wolves howling is, um, I'm sure you know the story, that it was the last of the original Yellowstone wolves were killed in 1926, about a half a mile from where we're standing. And so for any visitor that had come to Yellowstone from 1926 to 1995, when wolves were brought back and reintroduced and reestablished, yeah, I'm sure they had a great experience visiting the world's first national park, and they would have seen a lot of great stuff. But there's one thing that they missed out on. There would have been an unnatural silence here. But luckily we realized what a big mistake that was and figured out how to rectify it. So we're experiencing that right now. That silence is over. That's biologist Rick McIntyre and friends. Reporter Jennifer Jarrett brought us that audio postcard from Yellowstone National Park. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Clarissa Baker, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catalina Pierce-Schmidt, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, 
furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms, www.redtomato.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.